Greetings and welcome to St. Dominic's Weekly. This is Father Michael. We have for you a very special edition of our podcast this week, a pro-life edition, if you will. Kathy Folan, who is our Director of Family Formation here at the parish, shares her story, a very personal, powerful story, which she's shared on the podcast in different iterations in the past. But this year, she was asked to talk to those who attended the Walk for Life here on the West Coast. And in preparation for that, she took the occasion to share her story in a more fulsome way with our young adults. Now, our young adult group meets every Wednesday at 7.30 in the evening, and they gather for a Mass at 5.30 on Sunday. So if you're a young adult in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, you are certainly always invited to our 5.30 Sunday Mass, after which there's often fellowship and and food, but then also every Wednesday gather for uh, different talks, uh, different fellowship uh, and support. It's not easy to be a Catholic, and especially these days for our young people, we want to support that at a parish level. Kathy's story is a powerful story of how she chose life. And just a word of caution for those for whom uh, the topics of uh, abortion or um, sexual assaults will be triggering. There's, there's nothing graphic in her story, but certainly those themes emerge. And so a word of caution for those who might be uh, listening. There's this, her story runs about an hour, and she takes questions and answers at the end, very poignant. And so I hope you are both edified and encouraged in your own walk with our Lord as you hear how the Lord has worked marvelously and powerfully in her life. And so whether you're on the go or taking it slow, many blessings as you enjoy today's show. Good evening. This is the 17th Walk for Life West Coast my family and I have participated in, 16 of those with all of you. I was asked to come here today to share my story. It is a story about how beauty and goodness can triumph over darkness and evil if we allow it. This story starts right here in San Francisco when I was raped by an acquaintance my junior year of college. I was so filled with shame, I didn't tell a soul. A month later, I was riddled with nausea for a few days and slowly realized I might be pregnant from that fateful night. I took a pregnancy test the next morning and the three minutes I sat on the edge of my bathtub waiting for the results were some of the longest in my life. If it was positive, my nearly perfect, all-American, well-planned life would be over. What would my parents think? What would my very Catholic friends and professors? My bosses? Would anyone ever marry me? As I turned the stick over, I saw the two lines which meant my fear had come true. I looked into the mirror and didn't recognize the person staring back at me. I was in a state of shock and panic. Yet in that same moment, I knew a beautiful life was inside me. For whatever reason, God had entrusted this life to me, and I knew I needed to do whatever possible to ensure he had the best, healthiest, most beautiful life. I knew that I loved him. I knew that I would probably choose adoption for him, as there was no father in the picture, and a father is so important. And I trusted we would somehow both be protected. Knowing how I would disappoint my parents, it took me 11 days of daily phone calls to finally tell them. And despite my trepidation, they responded with love, support, and a great sense of humor. 
as did my friends, professors, and bosses. My mother was born in 1945, when abortion was thankfully still illegal, and she herself was placed for adoption. When we met her birth mother and seven siblings when I was eight years old and gained a new family, whom we loved dearly. My mom learned that her birth mother had tried to abort her three times and failed. And in the end, she was so grateful that my mother was born. Thank God abortion was illegal then, as it should be now, or I wouldn't be standing before you. My dad, who fell in love with my mom at age 18, would have been miserable, and my siblings and all of our children wouldn't be here. My mom's story gave me a comfort level with adoption. In 1990, when I learned I was pregnant, open adoption was virtually unheard of and a very progressive idea. I knew that in order to choose the best life possible for my baby, I would need to choose his future family. I couldn't just hand him to an agent to place with whomever. I knew I wanted him to know me and never be burdened with possibly offending his parents by asking about me. And I knew I needed to know that he was okay. Through the process of looking at hundreds of families, my values were refined. I realized I wanted a family that practiced my same faith, had a stay-at-home parent, valued life and education, and had a great sense of humor. If I wanted this for my baby, shouldn't I want it for my possible future children? This changed my entire perspective on dating. I knew then that I should be looking for the future father of my children. Through many miraculous events, I was led to the Sullivan family who lived in Maryland. They came to my hometown of Spokane to meet my family, and we all immediately clicked, as though we had known each other forever. One of the many miracles was the selection of his name. Barry and Liz were in Maryland, and I was in Spokane, and we individually pondered the same name, Nathan, which means a gift from God. The Bible verse from Wisdom that claims, from your womb I have called you by name, is true. God names each of us before we are born. I also knew that I was meant to be the vessel that brought him into this world, and they were meant to be his parents. God had a plan, and we needed to seek his plan and do it. When Nathan was 21 days overdue, the doctor told me he would have to induce labor. I cried all the way home from that appointment, knowing that giving birth to him would mean the beginning of saying goodbye to this beautiful life that I was now attached to, even though I had yet to hold him in my arms. He was born after 36 hours of labor, and everyone present cried except my parents and me, who were completely at peace which could only have been from the Holy Spirit. My biggest worry as the oldest people-pleasing daughter had been changing my mind about adoption at the birth because of my parents' visible sorrow, but God took care of it at the prompting of the prayers of so many. After a few minutes of holding him, my dad peacefully asked if he should go and call the Sullivans to tell them their son had been born 
And I responded with a smile, yes. I kept Nathan for six days, which my adoption counselor advised, as she said my family and I were strong enough and it would be a beautiful experience. And she was right. The, Sullivan, the Sullivans arrived and met him on day three, and we had a baptism and handing over ceremony on day four, where Barry and Liz welcomed all present into their family and said they felt like they had a new big group of long-distance cousins. They offered to send pictures and letters and exchange visits with whomever wished, and they honored that request. I went back to college less than two months later. I won't say it was easy to place Nathan for adoption. I cried every night in the middle of the night so no one could see. I stayed positive, I prayed a lot, and I aimed to be a great pro-life example on campus. Barry begged me to go and visit them in Maryland for spring break, which I thought was a crazy idea, but I went. It was the best thing I could have done. The moment I walked into their loving home and saw him with the family I could not yet provide, I knew them with 100% certainty that I had made the right decision for him and my nightly tears ceased. Two weeks after I returned from that trip and now completely at peace with my decision, I met the man of my dreams who is now my husband of almost 25 years. He fell in love with me the instant he heard my story. Barry once said that the reason our story has turned out so beautifully is that our trust in God and what has always been best for Nathan was at the center of our relationship. We were the guinea pigs of open adoption. And while we didn't always know what we were doing or would do next, as is the case with most parents, we all trusted that the Holy Spirit would guide us and show us his will, and he has. Nathan has an incredible resume, including Eagle Scout, National Merit Scholar, winner of the Mock Senate in college, teaching scuba divers, etc. He inspired our boys to join the Boy Scouts so they could be just like their older brother, and both earned their Eagle Scout. He helps my daughter with computer science, which she is also gifted in. He is part owner of a drone technology company, which now has offices in three states. He attended an aeronautical engineering university in Florida, and my own boys decided to attend the same university, and they now see each other on a sometimes daily basis and have formed a strong brotherhood. And he watches over, inspires, and motivates them. While his CV is impressive, what is most important is the love he has for all who meet him and his willingness to help anyone at the drop of his hat. His faith is most important in his life, and he is a selfless, strong, great Catholic man and role model for our children. He is def his is definitely a life worth living, as is every life. When people even pro-life people say that exceptions should be made in the case of rape. As a mother, this offends me so much. Why is his life worth any less than yours? Why should he be punished to death for the crime of another? He is an incredible human being who has blessed so many. 
Some say that I shouldn't have been forced to go through a pregnancy that was through no fault of my own. I'm not going to say it wasn't difficult. It was. But I chose to love this life that God created, to be empowered and strengthened by my experience, without which, which I wouldn't have become who I am today, nor would I have the incredible husband and thus children that I have been blessed with. Giving birth to Nathan did not destroy my life, as the abortion side would like you to think is the only outcome, but gave me a new, better, richer, and stronger life. To kill him would have meant not only enduring the pain of rape, but the guilt and trauma of knowing my child died at my own hands. In a way, giving birth to him is what healed me because it gave reason to a painful experience. He is the beauty that came out of a very dark place. If any of my children looked me in the eyes and asked if I would endure rape in order for them to exist, of course I would. It wouldn't be easy. It wasn't easy. But I would do, endure anything to give them life. That's what motherhood is. That's what love is. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Motherhood is not sacrificing the life of your own child so that you can live the way you want, but sacrificing yourself so that your child can have the best life possible. When I look back over my life, I see the handwriting of God all over it. And it is so much more beautiful than I ever could have written on my own. The moment I looked at that positive pregnancy test and my life as I knew it flashed before me and I trembled with fear, I had no idea that 29 years later I would be standing here before you today to share my awesome testimony of how powerful God has been in my life and the grace that has surrounded us all. I had no idea that this baby would inspire my future children to study computer science and engineering and to earn Eagle Scout like he did and to attend the same university in the town he lives where he watches over them and protects them as their relationship grows in love and respect and true brotherly friendship. How could I have known that my husband would choose me as his wife not in spite of my story, but because of it. I had no idea that this life would turn out so beautifully, as well as his family's and my own. If you find yourself in a crisis pregnancy, know that you are stronger than you think, will be more supported and loved than you expect, and you will be okay. If you don't feel supported, there are churches and agencies waiting to help you. You will end up stronger, and you will survive, and so will your baby, and this will empower you. Choose life, choose love. I want to introduce you to my beautiful family, my husband Luis, our beautiful children, Kira and Brendan, and our Justin couldn't be here today. And the person I truly want you to meet today is none other than Nathan, who is an amazing human being and loves the life he has been given. He is truly a gift from God. Thank you.
born in Chicago when my dad was in law school at Loyola Merrim. Loyola of Chicago. Yeah, Loyola of Chicago. So he went to Gonzaga Prep like I did when it was all boys. He said girls ruined it when they came, but I disagree. And, and then he went to Seattle University, which is another Jesuit school in Seattle. Um, and that's where he met my mom. My mom was a nursing student and they met at the freshman dance and their eyes met across the room at 10.35 p.m. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, next. This is us growing up. So that's one of my school pictures. I think I'm probably eight or something like that in that picture. Um, everyone likes a good 70s picture. And there's my brother Michael sporting the sky blue polyester suit. <laughs> And the four of us um, up at the top, so I'm the oldest, and then my brother John, and then Michael, and then Laura was in my mom's arms. And this is while I'm still the tallest. It didn't last very long. Okay. <laughs> this is high school, and I knew you guys wanted some good 80s pictures, so I'm here to provide them. <laughs> That is junior prom, and we got the fancy picture packet, so I had a solo, and my date had a solo, and then we had the combined with like the neon background. It's really cool, and my hair is crimped. And then this is my best friend, Heather, and me, and we were in this mint green phase. Those are all Esprit clothes, by the way. Do you remember Esprit? And then this is the father-daughter dinner dance at Gonzaga Prep, and that's my dad and me. And then that's Karina, the one who Allison babysat her kids, and her dad, and my best friend Cindy, we've been friends since fifth grade, and her dad, and a girl named Amy. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Spokane. I was co-captain of the dance team. I was involved in musical theater. I was in the symphonic choir, which is like kind of like our 1130 choir, but it was high school, so not as good. And, um, and then the jazz choir, which was the top 16 kids, and we had to meet before school to rehearse. And I took a lot of dance and acting, and that's kind of what I was like. And, um, and then I decided to go to the University of San Francisco solely because even though I kind of had a wild phase, I knew in the back of my mind I wanted a Catholic school. I just wanted it there for the taking when I was ready. And I'm not, that's not good, but thank God I went to USF. <laughs> and I wanted to go to San Francisco and get out of Spokane. Love Spokane now. But when I was 18, I was ready for big city living in California. So I came to USF, and that is my roommate Mari um, in the top right corner. And she ended up going to get a silver medal in the Olympic Games. So I always say, that at the same time that I went on this retreat on my 19th birthday, that's on my 19th birthday at the retreat with my friend Heather, that is when my life turned 180 degrees and I found Jesus. I already knew him, but I kind of lost him, but I found him in a deeper, more meaningful way and really took my faith seriously. It changed my life completely. My husband says, he's back there, he can tell you. If he had met me before that, he wouldn't have dated me. But <laughs> then he married me. So um, I really found God. I started going to Mass every day, and, um, and it changed my life. And my friend Mari started working out six hours a day. So she went for gold, she got Olympic silver, and I'm going for heavenly gold. That's my thing. <laughs> Um, and then these are, those were a couple of my other girlfriends, too. And then, oh, go back. Oh, no, 
Yeah, you're right. Go back. Okay. <laughs> okay. So then, that's okay. <laughs> then, um, then I found out I was pregnant. When I first found out, um, I didn't tell, well, I told my, one of my roommates. And she was a friend from Spokane from high school. She was not going to USF, but she moved here because she thought I would motivate her and inspire her to have a better life. And then she helped me get a pregnancy test. So, um, but she was the only one I told. And she's like, Kathy, I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's not positive. I'm sure it's wrong. I'm sure it's wrong. Just go to work, pretend like it's wrong. And, and I try, but I couldn't do that. And then she took me to Planned Parenthood after work. And I really didn't know much about Planned Parenthood, but we went there and I paid my $15 and I waited in this crowded, crowded room. Um, and they called my name and they gave me a test. And then we went back out into the crowded room and then they called me back. And I knew then, like, of course it's positive. It was this morning. It's not going to change. Uh, and, and we went back into the room and the woman told me I was pregnant and she said, you have three options. And I said, let me just tell you, I will never get an abortion. And she's like, now I wish I had kind of like, I don't know, felt her out a little bit. But when you're in that moment, that's not what you're thinking about. And, um, she's like, okay, then you can keep your baby or place it for adoption. So I asked her, do you have any adoption agencies? And they did not. They had no phone numbers. They had no list. They said, go home and look it up in the phone book. I said, okay, do you have nutrition information? Like, what can I not do? Can I exercise? What can I eat? Like, I had, like, all these kind of questions, and she had, like, some very basic things. In the meantime, my friend is freaking out. She's crying. She's, like, <laughs> she's shaking. And then she said, why is, why is Kathy not freaking out? And I am. And she's like, well, everyone's different. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we went and she told me I had to go she knew the guy that had raped me as well and she told me I had to go tell him and I did not want to tell him I did not want to see him and she was the only one with the car of all my friends it's a commodity here in San Francisco you know and, um, and she drove me there and she said we have to tell him and so we went in to his room, which is where it happened. And I told him I was pregnant. And he said, no way. How, how can you be? How can this happen twice to the same guy? And I said, what are you talking about? And he had just cheated on his girlfriend with her best friend and a, a year earlier. And she got pregnant and said she was going to place a baby for adoption. The baby was born. She changed her mind instantly. And that happens a lot. And um, so he told me I could either, if I didn't have an abortion, he would commit suicide or move to Mexico. And I don't know, Mama Bear came over me. I'm not usually confrontational. And I said, I will buy you the gun or the plane ticket. I am not killing my baby because you can't accept the consequences of your own actions. And then we left. And then um, <laughs> he kept calling me and hounding me for a couple of weeks, like every day. And I finally just said, you know what? I don't, you are not a father to this baby. Even if I change my mind and don't place him for adoption, I will never accept a dime from you. I don't want anything from you. Just leave me alone and sign the papers when I send them. And he left me alone and he signed the papers. And that was that relationship. 
So I, um, my original plan was to go to a maternity home somewhere, have the baby, place him for adoption, and never tell us all. Well, I was going to tell my parents, and obviously my, my girlfriend knew. So a few close friends would know, but most of the world wouldn't know. And I think a lot of people do that, and that's fine. Um, this is my roommate, Kathy. About a month after I found out I was pregnant, she and my other roommate staged an intervention because they thought I was bulimic. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, no. Okay, it's morning sickness and I'm pregnant. But <laughs> um, And also I have a favorite philosophy professor who noticed something was up. And um, I went and talked to him and I confided in him. And he convinced me not to keep it a secret, but to get the support of my friends and my professors and be a great pro-life example on campus. And, um, and now my daughter's at USF and she just took his class yesterday. So he's still teaching there, which is pretty great. So this was on a trip to Angel Island that we went on with the St. Ignatius Institute and nobody knew still. And um, my friend Kathy said, Mother Teresa's sisters happened to be on the same boat as us the missionaries of charity, and they had their AIDS patients, which in 1990, AIDS was pretty prevalent and very deadly. And so Kathy is one of 13 kids. She's super Catholic. She has 11 kids now. And um, she's like, let's go talk to those AIDS patients. And I, I was like, really, Kathy? Like, <laughs> she's like, yeah, 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 let's go talk to them. Oh my gosh, they were amazing. And they told, one of the guys said, that his friend was going to die within a couple weeks, but there he is in the wheelchair and we're taking him to Angel Island and we're going to have this great day out. And he said that he had such a horrible lifestyle doing drugs, sleeping with anything, and he had AIDS and his family disinherited him and he was just on the road basically to hell is what he said. And then nobody would take him in except the missionaries of charity. So he moved into their home and they would say, do you want to go to Mass? He's like, no. Do you want to pray? No. <laughs> like He didn't want anything to do with it, and they didn't force him. They just kept happily caring for him. And he said after a few months, he's like, these women, I'm so mean to them, and they have so much love. Like, what is it about them? And so he asked them to go to Mass, and he found Jesus, and he said that AIDS saved his soul. And here I am in a crisis pregnancy, but it's not as bad as that. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, like Jesus, Jesus can help you. Jesus can save you. And that was a powerful moment for me. Okay. Um, so I finally told people, and my dad told me I had to tell my grandma. He would not tell his mother. I had to be the one that told her. So I told her the weekend of her wedding. Now, my, gran my grandpa died my junior year of high school. And they were married 45 years. And they got married during World War II. And they had to elope. And they couldn't have a wedding dress. And, you know, it was during World War II. And it was right before my grandpa went off to war. So she'd always dreamed of having a wedding with a wedding dress. And um, six years after my grandpa died, she found this man, John. Oh, he's not up there. John Charwat at the senior citizens dance. <laughs> they loved going dancing. And... Um, <laughs> The dances are at 2.30. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, anyway, so they got engaged, and they were going to get married in, 
the next summer and then they said she, they moved it up to three weeks she had to get married in three weeks because she's a good catholic woman and she couldn't wait anymore that's what she told me <laughs> so when i told her i was pregnant and it was so hard i had to sit my grandma down and tell her she's like oh honey i've been worrying about you now that i'm out in the dating world old men don't change they want to take me back to their trailer home and i say not me. I'm a good Catholic woman, and you'll have to marry me first. <laughs> she took it well. <laughs> um, and that's my friend, my roommate, Shireen, who went and did the pregnancy test with me, and we've been close friends since high school. And then this is my friend, Matthew, and he was another one that I confided in. He studied at Blackfriars, yay Dominicans, in Oxford, England, and I was supposed to join him that spring and do study year abroad. So now I was pregnant. So I kind of thought that was probably not going to happen. Um, so he was one of the ones I called all the way in England for like $3 a minute back then to tell him the news. And he told me, he's like, Kathy, still come to England. I'll help you. You can give it to a British baby and your baby will have an accent. And then we can still go to Egypt like we want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I told the director of the St. Ignatius Institute that I was pregnant and I was trembling, he told me I could still go to Oxford if I wanted to. I'm thinking maybe he, he knew I wouldn't, but he's like, we will help you in any way. And he called all my professors and helped me. He told them about my morning sickness and he helped me withdraw from a class without it being on my transcript. And um, they were really incredibly supportive. So. Uh, then I debated whether I should, so that philosophy professor, Dr. Tory, had told me I should stay in school the whole time. And Nathan's due date was May 30th, and the semester ended May 18th. And um, I just think he was a man, <laughs> I didn't realize, but I really debated, like, maybe I should stay in school the whole pregnancy and everything. And then um, it was really I don't know why, it took me like a month and a half of agonizing pain to decide whether I would stay in San Francisco or go home to Spokane. And then I called a good priest friend of mine and he said, are you close to your mom? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, it might be good to be with family during that time. And then I went to St. Ignatius Church and prayed for 45 minutes and I'm like, duh, of course I'm gonna go home to Spokane. So that's my beautiful hometown up there, taken off the internet. <laughs> Joyce. So my roommate Kathy that I told you about um, had a friend in Chicago who was a nurse and she was an adoptive mother of a four-year-old girl at the time and she had been present at her daughter's birth and I thought that was so amazing and she was also a nurse so she knew everything about pregnancy and body changes and so I developed a friendship with her over the phone um, because I could ask her questions I didn't maybe necessarily want to ask my mom and I could ask her about adoption and after a couple months of our friendship I decided that I wanted her and her husband to adopt my baby so I told her that and she said Kathy you need to go and look at other families you haven't looked at any other families which is pretty huge for her to say that um, so I obeyed, and when I got to Spokane, I went to an open adoption agency and looked at all these profiles, which I don't know if you guys know, that each family puts together a photo album, and it has pictures of their home, their life, and usually a letter from the mom and the dad. And so you're looking through these albums looking for a family. 
to give your baby to. And um, I couldn't find one. So I told Joyce, I still want you. And she, she said, great. So she called her lawyer. And then she found out because she was in Illinois and I was in Washington, there was a six-month-long interstate compact that had to be done by the FBI. And the baby was due in three months, three or four months. And he couldn't be with me and he couldn't be with them. And it'd have to be in a home for a couple months. And so I cried and cried because that can't happen. And my dad's a lawyer. And he's like, just leave it to me. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so a week later, he figured out. He figured out how to, how to work the system. And, um, and then we bought a plane ticket. We decided my dad would go with me to Chicago to meet this new family and check them out, see if they're okay. And... We were getting in the car to go to the travel agency to get the tickets pre-internet. It was hard to buy a plane ticket back then. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my mom called me back in the house because Joyce was on the phone and desperately needed to talk to me. And then I got on the phone and she said she couldn't adopt my baby. And I said, why? And she said she'd been so sick and had a battery test done and she was 13. No. She was pregnant after 13 and a half years of infertility. And I said, well, you can still adopt my baby. People have twins. You know? <laughs> and she's like, no, no, no. And so I was sitting on my dad's lap in the living room crying. Like, now what do I do? And my dad just said, you know what? God has a plan. And he is not supposed to be with her. And he even created a miracle of her getting pregnant. And God will give us his plan. We just need to look for it. So I went back to the agency, looked for families, wasn't finding one. In the meantime, Joyce had said she would keep her ears peeled for the kind of family I was looking for, which was Catholic, valued education, fought for life, and was super funny, and had a stay-at-home parent. So, um, so she said she would keep her ears peeled, and a week later, she called me with the names of Barry and Liz Sullivan, who lived in Maryland. An hour later, my priest friend, who was also keeping his ears peeled, called me with the same name. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, my dad was right. God has a plan. So I asked her to send me letters and pictures. I didn't want to talk to them, or I'd feel too obligated. Um, and those came in the mail, and there were 32 photographs, and the last two were a Barry dressed as the Easter Bunny for his Catholic church. So I'm like, he's fun and Catholic, okay. And I kinda knew, um, when I showed him to my mom, she got angry, because I think she secretly wanted me to, to keep the baby. When I showed him to my dad, he cried, and he just said, yeah, this is probably the family. Okay. By the way, she had five more babies after that. All boys. <laughs> oh, and another thing, Father Michael won't like this. She wanted to name my baby Michael. <laughs> and, and at first I loved that name. And then I, you know, one of my brothers is named Michael, and he was the one that we couldn't get the same babysitter twice for. And another friend had a brother named Michael that was the same way, and they're like, it's because the devil goes after him because there's have St. Michael the Archangel. And I'm like, oh, he shouldn't be named Michael. <laughs> so that was another issue I had with Joyce. So now she had her Michael. Um, so we met Barry and Liz. This is a really grainy picture, but that's when they came to Spokane, and we met them, and we just clicked, like, right away. With my family, we had dinner t all together, and um, we're telling jokes and laughing, and really hit it off. Yeah. 
when I was eight months pregnant, my brother was being confirmed. In Spokane, you get confirmed your senior year of high school or junior year. Back then, I think it's different now. And um, my mom asked me to go to the Catholic bookstore with her. And I'm like, okay, I have nothing to do. And there were all these bookmarks with names and their meanings on them. And I did not want to name him. I knew we knew it was a boy at this stage, but I didn't want to name him because I felt like his parents who were going to raise him should name him. But I just started looking at these bookmarks <laughs> and the name Nathan jumped out at me because it means a gift from God. And I thought, what a great name for an adopted baby. But I also hated the name Nathan all my life because there was a bully in my brother's class named Nathan. <laughs> so it was really weird that I liked this name and it just haunted me. I couldn't get it out of my head all day long. Well, they called me later that night and I asked them, have you guys thought of any names? Are you thinking of any? And Liz said, well, we're trying to decide between Jason and Nathan. He went, okay, so I told her about what had happened that day, and she said, then Nathan it is. So I've always believed that God calls us each by name from the womb. This is me at the beginning of labor. They had to induce me, so it took like 36 hours. It was really fun. And... Um, <laughs> Um, oh, and this is when I'm pregnant, too. So I was pregnant on my 21st birthday. So when people are like, what would you do on your 21st birthday? Not much. We went to a fancy <laughs> restaurant, and um, my mom told the waitress my story and that I hadn't had any alcohol, and it was my 21st birthday, and the waitress brought me a glass of champagne. So it was like the opposite of that Red Robin story in Seattle a few years ago. Um, so I did have one glass of champagne on my 21st birthday. And then that is my brother's high school graduation from Gonzaga Prep. And I just remember that day being so embarrassing because it's our community. It's our, it's in Spokane, isn't that big? And it's our Gonzaga Prep community. And I'm going there eight months pregnant to my brother's graduation. Um, but we did it and no one gave us any flack. And we got a lot of support too. And this is a picture of right when he was born. And so that was the other surprise. I, I wish that the Elliots were here. But Karina was in the room when Nathan was born. And that's Karina and my friend Cindy. Um, and it was a beautiful moment. I mean, we were definitely at peace. And that's my mom up there smiling away. <laughs> so God bless her. Um, and this is right away, too. I, I put a lot of pictures in here, so sorry. <laughs> There's me holding him. There's us all toasting champagne. You see, we tried to approach it in a positive way. And, um, and my mom holding him, and that was my little sister. That's my brothers doting over him. And, and then my dad. And my grandma, my grandma came over every day. So I kept him for six days, two days in the hospital and four days at home. All the neighbors came over. All our friends came over. My grandma came over all the time. I remember one day just crying because I didn't get to hold him because everybody else wanted to hold him and everybody wanted to meet him. But it was really like bringing him home was healing and powerful for everyone because they got to smell him and hear his noises and just get to know him a little bit before we had to say goodbye for a while. So. 
this is when the Sullivans came when he was three days old. And so this is the moment when they met their new son and their new brother. And Kristen was five years old. So she got to hold her little baby brother. That was a powerful moment. I didn't get much sleep. <laughs> and I remember thinking like during those six days, like, wow, this really is exhausting. And um, yeah, I, I think that helped me know I was making the right decision too. But I took a lot of pictures of him in the middle of the night because he was so cute sleeping, right? Like just cute. And then my brother, John, he's never slept well. He still doesn't. He's now six foot seven. When I said that I'm now the shortest, my brothers is six, seven and six, four. My sister's five, nine. I'm the shortest in my family. But um, John would come up and hang out with him, with me in the middle of the night, too, and bond. And then my brother Michael helped me give him his first bath on his baptism day, day four. This is the baptism. And we did it at our church. And Barry and Liz and I were the parents. And my parents were the godparents. And then we had a lot of close friends and family come. And my uncle Ken and Aunt Jean and their boys came over from Seattle to meet him. And they were all present at the ceremony. I don't even know whose idea it was, if it was my mom's idea, the adoption counselor. But it was such a great, I think it was my mom's, because she didn't want him to go on an airplane unbaptized. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the adoption counselor said, why don't you add a handing over ceremony at the end of that baptism. So that's what we did. So here he is being baptized by the deacon, who was our good family friend that lived up the street. And then this is at the handing over ceremony. And you can see uh, the deacon blessed all of us and all of our relationship for the future. And Barry welcomed all of us into their family and said he would send letters and pictures and they could come and visit. And my grandma took him up on that all the time and he sent them. <laughs> um, and then I placed him into Liz's arms or I tried to and she, I think that's the beauty of open adoption is she knew what pain this gain that she was getting was causing me and she wouldn't hold him. She gave him right back to me. Like she, the whole time we were together, all those six days, she wanted me to hold him the whole time. Um, which was really beautiful. Um, in the courthouse, so this is the day that I gave him up. This was our last day. And my dad was on, is a lawyer, so he had trial at the courthouse. So I had to go to the courthouse to finalize the adoption. And then my dad got to say goodbye to him there, and that's that picture and I do remember in the car getting out of the car at the courthouse panicking and going what the heck am I doing I don't want to do this like I really was going to change my mind but I also knew if I told a soul that it would postpone the decision 72 hours and I knew I would go through all the same reasoning and make all the same lists and I would probably come to the same conclusion and then just delay it 72 hours so I didn't tell anyone but that was the closest I came to changing my mind and not doing it, I think, because it was so final. I knew we were going from the courthouse to the airport. Um, and then that card, which is really blurry, I lost, I don't know where the card is because it was in storage when we moved to Ireland and got lost. But Kristen drew me a picture of her new family and said, Dear Miss Kathy, thank you for my baby brother. 
love Kristen, which was really sweet. If this could, a picture could say a thousand words, this someone took, I think my brother Michael, and that was at our house as I was handing him to Liz um, for what I thought was the final time, but then she handed him back to me again. But, um, but that was when I was giving him to her, and the next picture is her receiving him, and she said thank you like you've never heard a thank you before. It was guttural. And then this is at the airport. And they, back then, it was pre-9-11, so you could go and wait at the gate with people before they boarded the plane. So my, John, my brother John and my mom and I um, went with them, and they had me hold Nathan the whole time. And I don't remember this. I think I was just too overwhelmed. But my mom and my brother John said they had to, basically carry me out and they said everybody in there was silent and they were all praying and they all knew what was happening so. and then I went back to college <laughs> and <laughs> um, two months later actually this summer oh a few weeks later my mom's um, really good friend was running a vacation bible school and was probably partly my mom's doing. All of a sudden, they needed a teacher for the three and four-year-olds. Holy cow. That was a hard week. And so, <laughs> and I found out on Sunday. And so, my brother Michael was my assistant. So, if I was 21, he was 17. Okay. And we had 14 three and four-year-olds. It was a lot of work. <laughs> and, but that's us teaching vacation Bible school. Um, it was fun, too. They were adorable. And then my friend Nicole brought me to Seattle for a shopping weekend, and we had a lot of fun together. And then um, I went back to college two months later. This is at a senior dance with a lot of our friends, and you'll notice the guy down in the front. <laughs> we weren't dating yet, but now he's my husband. But <laughs> the guy in the middle was my date. And he... He kept saying, "Can you will you dance with me?" And I said, "I can't. I have a date." And so he had this our friend Miriam go ask my date to dance. And he goes, "Your date's dancing now. Now, now you can dance with me." <laughs> <He's> sly. <laughs> um, we I was also active in the pro life group, and this is when we picketed the abortion clinic. It was on Bush and ah, just a few blocks up. It became a yoga center or something, I think. But also. My now husband is standing right next to me, and we were not dating then either. So we were both in the pro-life group together. Both went to 10 p.m. mass. Both went to adoration at 3 or 4 in the morning because that's when we were coming home from going out. But, so <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. Um, then I said in my speech they begged me to go spend spring break with them it was my very first time to Washington DC and this is that trip where I got to see Nathan when he was 10 months old um, there we are at the White House don't you wish I was in it and <laughs> um, yeah it was it was a great little trip there and it, it was very healing in so many ways And then this is us in college. We were Jasmine and Aladdin on Halloween. <laughs> Louisa's mom made our costumes. 
um, and that's a senior ball. And I ended up getting to go to Oxford University my senior year. They made an exception for me. And so I still got to go my very final semester, which was good because I was done with school and I needed a, a change. Um, and then Luis and I got married as soon as he graduated. So he's younger than me. <laughs> um, and he graduated in 95. And we got married. There's our wedding in Spokane. Um, and then two months later, we moved to Dublin, Ireland, where he went to medical school. And we had our daughter, Kira, and our son, Justin, there in the National Maternity Hospital is where I gave birth, and that's where James Joyce was born, and it hasn't been remodeled since. That's what they say. <laughs> Next. Um, oh, there's us in Ireland. That's one of my favorite pictures of me with Kira, and she was like, it was St. Patrick's Day, and I think she was 13 and a half months old there. And then that's our little, we lived on Bramley Garth. I don't know how to say that in Irish. Do you, babe? Mm yeah, Gorsha Bromley, I have no idea. Anyway, that was our house behind us right before we left. And then here's Nathan. And so I saw him again when he was 17 years old. We went and spent a week with them. That was my husband's idea, actually. And we stayed with them in their house. I think mainly my husband wanted a free place to stay, but he <laughs> not. <laughs> but, um, but that was beautiful. I was so nervous pulling into their house because I hadn't seen him since he was 10 months old. And, and my husband's like, why are you nervous? Shh, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and then when we got there, his parents weren't there, but he was. And he plays the piano beautifully. And I sing. And so we looked through the book to see. It was my husband's idea again. You guys should do a song together. And so we looked for the first song that we could find that we both knew. And at the end of it, I looked for the video tonight to show you guys, but I couldn't find it. But at the end of it, um, I started choking up because the song that we both knew was Think of Me from Phantom of the Opera. And the words are like, think of me, think of me fondly when you've said goodbye. Remember me once in a while. Promise me you'll write. So it was, it was a beautiful moment. And then he graduated a year early from Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University because he was homeschooled second through 12th grade. So he took a lot of college credits at the community college when he was in high school. And he moved to the Bay Area. So he moved here in 2012 and lived here for about two and a half years. And that's when we really got to know him um, better. And then he moved back to Florida. I don't know, something about rent being high and traffic <laughs> and it not being 80 degrees every day. Um, and he loves scuba diving too. Um, and he owns a drone technology company and they have offices in DC now and also Austin, Texas. And I don't exactly know what he does, but I know they're hired by Comcast to like go survey the lines before they send people up. And also after hurricanes. So like FEMA, the government will hire them to send out a drone surveillance before they send people out into harm's way and to see where they need to help first. So this is us walking in the March for Life in 2013 together, which was powerful. And then here we are in St. Dominic's before I worked here. And this is us in the first Easter that he was here. We went up to Tahoe to my sister-in-law's house. And this was the church we found that had Easter Sunday Mass. And the choir didn't show up. And it was interesting. But, um, <laughs> that 
that's at, I forgot where that is. Somewhere in Tahoe, yeah, down by the lake. And then um, that is Justin at his Eagle Scout ceremony, and he joined Boy Scouts because of Nathan. Brendan also earned it, but hasn't had his ceremony yet. And then this is when I brought Brendan and Justin to Daytona Beach, Florida this past August. Um, they're a freshman and a sophomore there. And this is our family. This is our Christmas card. So. Brendan is a freshman. Kira is 22, right back there. My husband, Luis, and me and Justin is our middle child. He's 20, and he's a sophomore at Embry-Riddle. I think that's it. Does anyone have any questions? <laughs> Any questions? Question. Okay. What do you uh, say to people when you are in this discussion about trollization? What are the points you tend to make? Like, so for example, if you're on the walk on Saturday, mm -hmm. it comes up to you, what, what would you talk about? So Father Christopher asked what I would talk about, what points I would make if I was in a pro-life discussion. And I think it really comes down to it's a human being. Right, and the deliberate destruction of a human being is murder and shouldn't be sanctioned. I was pro-choice before I went to college. I thought I was pro-life because I thought pro-life meant I would never have an abortion and I knew I never would, but I didn't think it should be against the law because then women will die in backstreet alleys. Like that, I just bought the, the rhetoric. And it wasn't until I came to USF and I saw my St. Ignatius Institute friends with a petition and they asked me to sign it after lunch one day. And I said, sure, I'll sign that I'm pro-life. And then I read it and I said, this says it should be illegal. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, it shouldn't be. And he goes, then don't sign it. <laughs> and he wouldn't even engage with me at all. So I went back to my dorm and I was actually crying. So I understand like when people don't understand what, what it is they're talking about. Because I was crying and I called my dad. And um, I told my dad about it, and he said, okay, just let me ask you a question. Do you think that's a human being when you're pregnant? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you think killing a human being is murder? I said, yeah. And he said, well, then do you think the government should just provide a padded sanitary room for you to commit a murder in of someone you don't want in your life that's annoying you? And I said, no. And that's when it dawned on me. That's when it hit me, and that's when I changed my viewpoint. <laughs> yes. Okay. My take on, so she asked what, with the dignity of human life in mind, what is my take on the Me Too movement? Well, not necessarily and, like that specifically, as opposed to just like your experience with like, the situation. Obviously, you made the best out of it. Mm -hmm. Just like kind of with that. My experience with the situation. I mean, 
I know that it is still prevalent. And that, and when I first wrote my speech, and it was 25 minutes long, <laughs> so I had to cut a lot out, I called out for guys, watch out for people in parties, and girls, and girlfriends. Like, they're, my son is at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, and they had an experience the very first week with one of a girl that he's friends with that a guy roofied her, and she got away, and my, my son helped defend her. But even with the Me Too movement, it is still prevalent. Guys still think they can do Not all guys, obviously, right? All of you guys are great. But there are enough guys that still think they can do that, and it's no big deal. And his friend was even defending him. And um, so girl, we all need to be smart, girls and guys. Not get yourself too intoxicated. Not get yourself in that situation don't, I mean, we always tell our kids, if you're drinking something, even a Coke, don't put it down and then pick it up again. Like, you have to have it in your hand. But then everyone else needs to look out for everyone else, right? You need to protect anyone in harm's way and get them to safety. Yes. So he's asking if I can, how do I separate the pro-life movement and our mission to defend life from the current politicians and political climate now? And because people just think they all go together, right? Is that what you're saying? I mean, <laughs> I, I just try to stick to the issue and not the, polit the politician. I myself, I... I don't know what to say without naming names, but um, <laughs> I would never vote for anyone who is pro-abortion. I would never vote for anyone who is pro-choice, even if I'm not a huge fan of the pro-life candidate. I would still vote for that candidate over someone who is pro-abortion because if you don't understand how important life is, and the value and the dignity of life, what else are you gonna get? I guess that's how I would answer that question. <laughs> yes. Adoption as a, a very real 
So she's asking, um, because she said when I went to Planned Parenthood, and that was in 1990, that they didn't really have the options for adoption. They didn't have any, even a list of phone numbers for me or anything. Do I think that now we have resources set up so that girls can choose life or choose adoption? I would say in America, and it's different in other countries, but in America with open adoption, I think it's so much more approachable now because now a girl knows she has a choice of who to place her baby for, baby with. And we, um, we don't say give up for adoption anymore. In the adoption world, we say place a baby because you're placing them with a family. And also there's varying degrees of contact and that can be a lot of contact or not any contact if they don't want it. Um, my good friends spoke at the vigil last year. They have seven adopted children. I don't know if any of you heard their speech, but they have varying degrees of contact with the different birth mothers. Sometimes they've had to cut off the birth mother for a while until she gets her life back on track because you know she needs to be a good example for their children. But um, I'd say it's way, yeah, adoption is way better right now in America. And then for resources for women, I know there are a lot of churches and now even government agencies that are helping. Like we have a high school in San Francisco that has daycare in the high school. It's a public high school. That didn't exist back in the early 90s. So we're making progress to help support life. Yes. So he asked, where would I stand on a woman's right to choose what she wants to do with her body? And I, I understand the dilemma, but it comes down to that baby is a human being. And so that human being has rights too, right? And I don't think it's going to help the woman. It may temporarily, right? In the moment, it takes that panic away but in the long run I think it's worse for the woman and it's also it's a surgery it's like a surgical procedure and the states keep dropping the laws that protect that surgical procedure to not having the same levels of sanitation in a hospital some states are saying you don't have to be a physician to perform it and I remember my kids went to get their eyebrows waxed and they weren't 18 and they couldn't do it because I wasn't there to sign the permission slip. But they can go and have this surgical procedure without my permission that cuts a baby out of them. Like it's dangerous. It's dangerous for women. Um, and so I don't know if that answered your question or not. But. We have time for like probably two more questions. Okay. Yes.
Um, she asked, if I'm at the march this weekend, how will I engage in a positive conversation with someone who's pro-choice? I think that probably doesn't happen at the march that that much. Every time I've been at the Walk for Life, um, there hasn't been a lot of conflict. But I will say that most of my friends here in San Francisco are pro-choice, and we're still friends with each other. And I think that's a lot of what's missing in America today is that we can disagree and still be friends, right? So, um, and we try to engage in decent dialogue, um, and we and we usually do if we, if we broach the subject. Yes. So she was talking about, um, this is recorded, <laughs> she was talking about how um, we need to talk more about the trauma of abortion and the lasting effects that women have and the emotional pain that they go through because of it and the traumatic scarring of it. And I will say that's true. I mean, when I was pregnant, so many of my friends broke down to me that they had an abortion and they didn't know there was another option. And it sent them into a depression that I wasn't in and I was in a crisis pregnancy. And even when Nathan moved here as an adult and then our, our friends met him, a few of my friends confided in me um, that they had had abortions and they hadn't even really thought of it until they met him and saw him live in the flesh. And they went through their own depression during that time as well. And so I, I've seen the effects. And when, when, I, when a friend comes to me and tells me that, the first thing I say is, God will forgive you. And so will your baby, if you're sorry. And then now I've heard that you should name that baby and pray to that baby. And, um, and one of my close friends, I brought her to confession for the first time in 23 years. And, and then she started going to daily mass. I mean, like, so she, that had been in the back of her head, but she didn't know it. 
until she confronted it and dealt with it. And so it is traumatic and it does need to be talked about more so that women, but they, they don't want to talk about that part, right? So. Okay. Oh, one more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do I have guidance for families that want to adopt? No, I was wondering roughly what the numbers are of how many babies you put up for adoption um, relative to what the, de the, the demand for that is. I, I actually have no idea. He asked how many, what is the demand for adoption right now and what are the numbers for adoption right now, and I actually don't know. Um, when I mention the United States, it's because I do know that in Ireland, like four or five years ago, there were two adoptions total. And so... Um, it's become more a part of our culture. Um, it's more accepted in some countries and cultures. It's not, and that makes a big difference. So if we can support it, uh, support adoptive families and, women, and birth mothers and adoptees, it just becomes a part of the normal culture and the numbers would grow. Thank you. Thank you.